Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Jason Kuznicki. I am a research fellow, the editor of Cato Unbound, and a sometime French historian in my previous career. And uh, I am here to introduce our topic and our guest speaker today. Uh, but before I do that, I'd like to ask everyone to please silence your cell phones, your uh, iPods, your other electronic noisemakers, so that uh, there, we will not have any distractions as, as we do this. Uh, so we're here today to talk about a new translated and edited collection of the writings of Frederick Bastiat, who is uh, probably known to you all. He's, of course, a great French classical liberal, free market economist, campaigner for free trade, pamphleteer, politician, and uh, one of the great prose stylists, I would also say, in the French 19th century. Uh, he, uh, one, thing that I, one thing I always come back to with Bastiat is that he had this fantastic clarity in communicating his ideas, so much so that we use many of his phrases today, including probably most famously, uh, when we refer to the broken window fallacy, in which certain disfavored economic goods are, in fact, destroyed in the hopes of attaining some economic benefit. And Bastiat, of course, uh, his genius was to point out, using the broken window fallacy, that you don't actually create wealth by destroying wealth. You destroy wealth by destroying wealth. Uh, one new thing that I have learned from this volume or one fact I suppose was known to me but was not as deeply impressed on me, uh, is that he was also a tireless campaigner not only for free trade but for peace. And in many, many of his letters and pamphlets uh, that are collected in this volume, you see this continuous concern for disarmament, for peace, for peace conferences, for establishing good relations between France and all of uh, her neighbors. And, and here's one particularly striking example. This is a, a letter to his great friend uh, across the channel, Richard Cobden, also a campaigner for free trade. And it was written immediately after the change in regimes in the Revolution of 1848, which Bastiat got to, to witness. He writes, he writes to Cobden, uh, Paris, 25th of February, 1848, a very significant moment in French history. My dear Cobden, you already know our news. Yesterday we are a monarchy, today we are a republic. I have not the time to tell you about it. I simply want to put before you a point of view of the utmost importance. France wants and needs peace. Her expenses are going to increase, her income is going to decrease, and her budget is already in deficit. She therefore needs peace and a reduction in her military undertakings. Without this reduction, no serious savings are possible, and therefore no financial reform and no abolition of odious taxes. Uh, so this is, this is one thing that I think is particularly noteworthy about his letters and that I, I appreciated from this volume in the, the time I've had to go through it. But uh, our speaker is actually going to tell much, much more about it, and so it's probably best that I introduce him now. Uh, David Hart was born and raised in Sydney, Australia. You'll hear the accent just a bit. Uh, he did his undergrad work at 
Macquarie University in Sydney, writing a thesis on the radical anti-statist thought of the Belgian-French political economist Gustave de Molinari. After spending a year in Germany studying German imperialism and the origins of the First World War at the University of Mainz, he then completed an MA at Stanford University. While at Stanford, he worked on student programs for the Institute for Humane Studies. Uh, He was the founding editor of the Humane Studies Review. He received a PhD in history from King's College, Cambridge, on the work of two leading French classical liberals, Charles Comte and Charles Dunoyer. The former should not be confused with Auguste Comte, who had a very different set of political commitments. Uh, He then taught for 15 years in the Department of History at the University of Adelaide in uh, uh, South Australia, where he was awarded the University Teaching Prize. Since 2001, he's been director of the Online Library of Liberty Project at Liberty Fund. And uh, this is a a fantastic website. If you haven't been there, I would urge you to check it out. Uh, Not only are there all of the great texts of uh, classical liberalism, French and otherwise, uh, there is a, a very large amount of commentary on them. There are supporting texts. There are other works in... Uh, what might not necessarily be the classical liberal tradition, but certainly the Enlightenment tradition that might be helpful for understanding or for amplifying your understanding of these works. And uh, I can say that in editing the Encyclopedia of Libertarianism, uh, the work would almost have been impossible if it were not for the online library of liberty. So it does a tremendous, tremendous service to to, uh, the spread of classical liberal knowledge. I would only add one final thing before I turn the uh, podium over to our speaker. Uh, David was one of the very first Cato Institute interns along with Tom Palmer, and uh, hopefully this will be an inspiration to some of the interns in the room and a reminder that you can go on to do truly great things from Cato Internship. Thank you, Jason. Uh, It's very good to be here. Um, When you came in, you might have been able to pick up a couple of items, um, one of which is the Portable Library of Liberty Data DVD. Um, This is the newest edition, which only came out a couple of weeks ago. This is a subset of the material that's on the online Library of Liberty. This disc contains over 1,000 full-text books in PDF, Kindle, and EPUB formats. Um, So please take one, they're free, and uh, tell your friends about it. The other thing that you should have picked up um, is a catalogue of the Liberty Fund books that we publish, including the the Bastia, Volume 1, which appeared earlier this year. And there's also a handout, a couple of uh, texts from that Volume 1, which I want to go through towards the end of the the talk this morning. So please make sure you've got a copy of those, those texts. Uh, What I want to talk to you today about is um, a little bit about the background of how this book came about and what it contains, because I think it uh, reveals to us a Bastiat that many of us didn't know about, because we'd read things other than his letters. And it's in his letters that he opens up in a very personal way to his friends and colleagues and shows us um, the complexity and depth of his thinking and his love of liberty, which I think is uh, one of the, the great lessons we learn from looking at this book. Here's a picture of the man himself. Um, he died far too young. He was only 49. Um, we think, I think he died of throat cancer, possibly TB, but um, he was complaining about a polyp in his throat that made it impossible for him to swallow, and he was in excruciating pain 
when he finally died in 1850. And here he's wearing a medal or a medallion which indicates, I think, that he was a member of the Chamber of Deputies. He was an elected uh, member of the French Chamber. Let me um, just add to what Jason said about Bastiat's stylist, as, as a great stylist, a great writer. That's one of the things I've um, found in editing this collection. I must say that I am the academic editor for the project. The general editor is a French businessman by the name of Jacques de Ganin, and it's his inspiration that got this whole project off the ground ten years ago. It's been a long, hard ten years to get volume one out, and we hope... He, he certainly hopes that we finish, get all six volumes published before he dies, although sometimes he has black moments where he doesn't think this is going to happen. Um, let me just give you an example of um, Bastiat's writing style and his, his thoughts about liberty. Um, and um, I've just finished editing volume three, which is the collection of economic sophisms. And one of the striking things about that is how brilliantly he could write, how he could use wit, satire, um, his deep knowledge of French literature and also of his reading of political economy in order to make very complex ideas crystal clear. And uh, he was struggling at, uh, in the late 1840s to write a major theoretical treatise on economics, which he called Economic Harmonies. And it was a race against time because his uh, throat condition was worsening and he was found, it, found it increasingly difficult to work. Um, he writes him, to himself um, a letter where he talks about this project of writing the economic harmonies. And uh, this is a reflexive and sort of almost postmodernist style, but um, here's what he says to himself. My dear Frederick, like you, I love all forms of freedom, and among these, the one that is the most universally useful for, to mankind, the one you enjoy at each moment of the day and in all of life's circumstances, is the freedom to work and to trade. I know that making things one's own is the fulcrum of society and even of human life. I know that trade is intrinsic to property and that to restrict the one is to shake the foundations of the other. I approve of your devoting yourself to the defence of this freedom, whose triumph will inevitably usher in the reign of international justice and consequently the extinction of hatred, prejudices between one people and another and the wars that come in their wake, which I think is a wonderful summation of his life and his work. That's just one of the many gems that you can find in this, this volume. Now, Liberty Fund has been working on this uh, massive translation project um, for 10 years now. The, the, in 2001, there was the 200th anniversary of the birth of Frédéric Bastiat, and Jacques de Guénin, who was a sort of Bastiat um, enthusiast and promoter in France, uh, organised a 200th anniversary conference. And there was a, con a large contingent of Americans who went there to celebrate um, the man's um, bicentennial, more so than French, because uh, he's better known in... America, strangely, than in his own country. Um, and it was at this uh, uh, meeting in 2001 that Jacques de Guénin suggested to some of the board members of Liberty Fund who were also attending this conference that it would be good to have in English a complete translation of his works, and they agreed, and that's when this project uh, began. Uh, so that's uh, happened 10 years ago, and we're finally seeing the, the fruits of that um, from work. Um, Many people might say, well, why bother doing a new translation of Bastiat? Uh, don't we have the fee uh, translations that many of us know from the 1960s? Um, and uh, our argument is that there's at least twice that amount of material that has never been translated into English just waiting. So that was one reason to undertake the project, just to bring to 
Uh, English readers attention the large amount of material that is, uh, is, is not known to them. The second thing was to have a consistent and new translation across the entire uh, work of Bastiat. Uh, we could have used the old translations, but we decided to do new ones. And uh, what we also wanted to do with this uh, new edition was to provide um, all sorts of scholarly apparatus that would help stimulate what I hope will be a renaissance in um, Bastiat studies. If we can get the complete works of Bastiat in English, but also supporting material, um, like footnotes explaining who the people are that he's writing to, uh, who, what were the intellectual debates in which he was engaged in the 1840, late 1840s. And as pa what one part of the, the project which I think will be particularly valuable is as each uh, um, volume appears, we are gr gradually expanding a glossary, which we will include at the end of each volume, with short uh, encyclopedia-type articles about the key people and the key institutions and the key journals in both the English and the French classical liberal political economy movement. After, volume, after two volumes have gone through the pipeline, we have um, nearly 150 pages of this glossary, uh, which I think in its own right will be a very important uh, scholarly resource. Um, let me just indicate, um, these are two URLs if you're interested in pursuing uh, your reading on Bastiat. Um, there's my personal website, davidmhart.com, and I, I put a lot of material on Bastiat at that website, mostly in French. Um, so this is the largest... Uh, repository of Bastiat material on the internet. Um, his complete works, many different editions, some translations into uh, Spanish and, and uh, whatever. Um, I also put a more extended, or the full and complete version of this talk is on, on that website, along with other resources. So I recommend that to you. And then there's the Liberty Fund, uh, Liberty Fund's OLL. He's person number 25 in our database. So that's what that means. Um, if you go to that address, uh, slash person slash 25, you will find all the Bastiat material that we have there. Just to remind you about why Bastiat is important, um, if we didn't need reminding, I just sort of tried to summarise here some of the things that I think make him an important uh, figure. One is that he had an enormous impact on the French and European classical liberal movements in the mid-19th century. He was seen as one of the leading figures in France, cut down untimely um, because of this uh, illness. Uh, he was being um, groomed, if you like, to be the leader of the French um, political economy movement. He was offered the editorship of the uh, most important journal, the Journal des Economistes, which was the journal of the, of the economists. Um, he had an indirect influence on French free trade uh, policies. He, one of his um, followers was the politician Michel Chevalier, who persuaded Napoleon III... Um, to sign a free trade treaty with um, England in 1860, with Cobden. Cobden was the signer for England and Chevalier was the signer for the French government. And so that is the most concrete uh, policy result of Bastiat's uh, work. He was able to influence people like Michel Chevalier in the, um, in, the, in the French government. His works were quickly translated into all the major European languages. Almost a year after they appeared, they were often, I suppose, in pirate editions, um, which is quite interesting. Um, and so he was widely read and known across Europe. He was a brilliant stylist, but he also had a huge impact on American economic thinking. There was a Bastiat school of economics in the late 19th century in this country. Amasa Walker was one of the uh, uh, professors who um, continued to keep Bastiat's ideas alive in America. And when you combine with this with, this, with the fact that uh, one of the key textbooks used in um, teaching economics in America was Jean-Baptiste Say's treatise, 
of political economy. There is this strong French tradition of thinking in, in US uh, economics, which of course has now almost died away until its revival after World War II. We have the impact of Bastiat on the thinking of Leonard Reed at, at Fee, and it was him with the Folker, William Folker Foundation that uh, financed the translation of um, the works that we now have in, in English or by Bastiat. Henry Hazlitt, the journalist for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, um, was um, also uh, modelled his writings and his um, uh, even dedicated one of his books to um, Frederick Bastiat. Then we have some suggestions that Ronald Reagan had read some of Bastiat's work and that he was um, inspired by um, Bastiat's, not just his rhetoric about liberty, but also his um, real belief in liberty. And then, of course, we have the modern libertarian movement, which has continued to respect uh, the legacy of, of, of Bastiat. So that's why I think he's important and why we need to keep him, uh, his works alive. This is the plan for Liberty Fund, it, the six volumes. Um, volume one has appeared just early this year. Sometime next year in June, perhaps, we'll have volume two, which is his political writings, the law, the state, and many others. Volume three, economic sophisms. We found uh, only two-thirds of his writings of economic sophisms have been translated into English. There's one-third more that um, will appear with our edition. Um, miscellaneous works in economics is volume four. Volume five will be a reissue of economic harmonies. Um, and volume six is all his writings about free trade. Um, which is, I think will be a, a revelation to people. So that's the plan. I think uh, we'll have... Um, there'll be about 3,000 pages in our collection, six volumes of about 500 pages each, and I would say at least half of that it will be completely new material. And I want to give you a flavour of that um, today by reading you some of the extracts from the, from the letters uh, and other, other documents, which will give you a, a sense of what he uh, was doing. Um, just to show you where he was born, this has some bearing on his um, thinking. He was born, this, of course, Google Maps didn't exist in Bastia's day, but if it did, this is how it would uh, show him. This, he was born in a small town called Mugron, um, here in the southwest of France. This is a major wine growing area, Bordeaux. It's intimately linked into international trade because of the wine industry. It's close to the Spanish border, which has always been a source of Smuggling, which is just another word for free trade um, that's got approved by the government. And Bastia grew up in this area with his family involved in trade and commerce and insurance industry, both in France and across the border with Spain. It also meant that uh, Bastia became a polyglot. Right? I, I deeply envy um, his skill with knowledge. Right? He obviously spoke French because he was born in, in France, but he also spoke Spanish. He was fluent in Spanish and uh, worked with his grandfather in various uh, business activities in Spain. He also spoke and read Italian, and he also spoke and read English. And if that wasn't enough, this is the Basque area. He also knew quite a bit of uh, the Basque language. Um, in fact, he has a very funny letter where he talks about his family's um, <coughs> maidservant who was Basque, and she had absorbed some of the um, ideas of free trade from hearing conversations in the Bastia household, and he overheard her once talking to her Basque friends in Basque defending free trade. So this is quite amazing to me that there is possibly a Basque free trade movement that we don't know about. Um, so that's where he comes from, and uh, he was seen as... Um, he regarded himself as a bit of a provincial when he went to Paris. He was looked down upon for being a country bumpkin, um, 
And I, that was quite a source of hostility between him and the political economists who are based in Paris. And I've got a very funny letter where they talk about his rough-hewn uh, country-style clothing and his funny accent. And, um, but then they were overcome by his, the sheer genius of his uh, talk, his speech, his rhetoric, and they uh, suddenly forgot about all these silly uh, prejudices. Bastiat grows up in this part of France and spends the first um, 43 years of his life. Um, he uh, has uh, a number of things that are quite interesting. Uh, one is that he's, both parents die very young and he's brought up by grandparents. Um, he um, inherits his grandfather's estate when his grandfather dies in 1825. He becomes a gentleman farmer. So he's um, interested in... Um, using the most uh, new and recent scientific developments in farming to try and increase the productivity of his tenant farmers. And he sets up a school in order to educate uh, what he thinks are the rather backward-thinking um, uh, tenant farmers that uh, were on his property. In 1832, I think it was, um, he becomes a local magistrate. So he becomes a public servant, but in, you know, serving as a, as a judge, and he gets a reputation for the swift and relatively cheap um, services he provides in settling commercial disputes and between property owners. So he has that sort of um, a particular experience of, of real-world economic activities. He's also a member of a um, local book reading and discussion club. He has a restless mind and he wants to explore the world and he reads voraciously. In the 20-odd years between... Um, um, inheriting his grandfather's estate and his move to Paris in 1845. So there's 20 years there. He's stuck in this small provincial area. He's a minor magistrate. What does he do? He just reads constantly. He, everything to do with political economy. Talk about preparations for your um, post-grad finals. He had 20 years where he read everything that he could in Spanish, Italian, English, and, of course, French. And he doesn't really do anything with this until about 1844, when he discovers in his reading club um, some uh, newspaper articles about Richard Cobden and the Anti-Corn Law League in England. And uh, Bastiat becomes in, enthralled with the ideas of uh, Cobden and the free trade movement in England and says this is something that France could also benefit from. And so he begins corresponding with uh, Richard Cobden and he writes his first major breakthrough journal article in 1844, at the end of 1844, he writes a comparative study of tariffs and their impact on the French and English economies and how free trade would benefit France. This is published in the Journal des Economistes, and this is a, an immediate sensation. The economists in Paris said, where did this man come from? How could he write such brilliant material? And they invite him to Paris, and he takes Paris by storm, um, after some initial hiccups because of his accent and dress, but... <coughs> I'll read, leave that for a moment. So he leads this very quiet provincial existence and then suddenly appears on the, on the national stage in France. He's, he he um, tries to set up, on the model, modelling himself on the free trade movement of England, a Bordeaux free trade association, and then um, a national one. So that's one reason why he moves to Paris, so to try and set up a national free trade movement. And this all comes to a head in 1847 when the French Chamber of Deputies discusses a free trade movement. Um, remember, the Corn Laws had been abolished in England the previous year, 1846, um, and Bastiat was hoping that he could do the same in France, but it's defeated in the French Chamber of Deputies. So the, the, the dreams of setting up a free trade movement in France uh, get shot down because of that uh, political defeat. 
When he goes to uh, France, uh, to uh, Paris, he is welcomed um, and is offered, as I said, the uh, editorship of the Journal des Economies. So that, that is one of a, a recognition of his great talents, both as a writer and a thinker, by the, his fellow uh, free market uh, economists in Paris. Um, this is a larger map showing the various rivers um, in this part of the country where he, he lived. This is a, a picture of the town square in Mugron in the southwest of France. Um, we use that as the image on our cover for volume one. It's called Place Bastia in recognition of his uh, local boy done well. And here is a monument that was built uh, in his honour in 1878 by his friends and supporters who raised money privately and hired a, a, a famous uh, French uh, sculptor to do both a bust and another statue which is now missing. Um, and um, the names of his most famous books were written on this plinth. Uh, Cobden and the League, Economic Sophisms, Economic Harmonies. And a fourth one was added in 2001 uh, when there was the bicentennial celebrations of his birth. They added La Loi in honour of the Americans who regarded that essay as particularly important in uh, Bastiat's writings. In volume one... Um, these are the sorts of things that uh, we, you can find amongst the letters uh, and essays. There's 209 letters and 42 essays, and um, the correspondence reveals a lot of information about what's going on in Paris in 1848, which is the year of revolution, um, when the July monarchy is overthrown and the Second Republic is, um, is, is begun. Large number of letters with Richard Cobden, um, which reveal very interesting information about the strategies adopted by the free trade movement in England and, and Bastiat's hopes that they could be transferred to France uh, with his uh, French equivalent of the Anti-Cornal League. Many letters with other economists in Paris who are part of the Society of Political Economy, which was founded in 1842, and um, the Journal des Economistes. There's a lot of bitterness and rivalry, but also a lot of camaraderie, as you would imagine, amongst uh, scholars and academics who are renowned for their infighting and... Uh, debate. What's also interesting is his activities in the peace movement and in the peace congresses. He, this was seen by Bastiat as being one and the same thing. If you believed in free trade and free markets, you also had to believe in, uh, in peace and international disarmament. And just last week, I found um, the minutes of the peace congress of uh, 1849, which was in Paris and which was attended by Cobden and um, Bastiat, and I came across speeches by Bastiat and Cobden which don't appear in their anthologies or the collections of their material. So I think it's entirely new and unknown. And Bastiat gives this impassioned speech at the Peace Congress uh, in favour of disarmament and eventually um, argues in favour of a flat tax of 5%. He wants all indirect taxes abolished because they bear very heavily on ordinary working people like taxes on food and drink and so on. And he wants a flat income tax of 5%. Um, that was his solution to the... Then, he said, we can reduce the burden of taxes on, on ordinary people. Now, the, the period that, where Bastiat is um, most intensively writing, and remember, he, he, he writes his first major economics paper in 1844, and uh, he dies in 1850. So in six years, he writes 3,000 pages of stuff, right, at this breakneck, furious pace. And that, I think, is quite an extraordinary achievement. Um, 
And the things that he's involved with are debates among the classical liberals, but also debates with the conservative supporters of, of protection, debates with the rising socialist movement, and many of these socialists come to power in 1848 during the revolution and introduce some of the first measures of a welfare state in Europe in 1848-49, in particular the national workshops, which were um, a government-inspired effort to provide unemployment relief for unemployed French workers, and Bastiat was very much opposed to that and wrote a great deal about it. He was also opposed to French colonial policy in Algeria and other things. Um, the other thing that's quite interesting in the letters is the, uh, what reveals he has all these doubts about whether he should have ever been a politician. He was elected to um, the Constituent Assembly, which was the uh, first uh, national assembly after the revolution over through the July monarchy, and he gets elected in um, April of uh, 1848 to represent his district in the southwest of France. He is then re-elected when the National Assembly is convened after the Constituent Assembly had created a new constitution. And he has all these doubts about whether it's right or proper to be in politics using the power of the state to enforce change. Uh, is this the right thing to be doing? Um, should he be better spending his resources his time writing as a journalist or a theorist? Or should he be in Parliament um, and agitating on the floor and arguing and so on? And he's really torn between which is the most effective strategy. But he never really resolves that, uh, which is, uh, I think, very interesting even today when we have um, people with uh, sympathies towards the free market and free trade in, in Congress. This is um, a street in Paris, the Rue de Richelieu, this street down here. And this was the headquarters of the free trade movement and the political economy movement in Paris for 70 or 80 years. What happens is there is a bookseller by the name of Guillaume who decides that um, free trade um, needs to be supported and he was going to use the money he made as a bookseller to set up a publishing firm called the Guillaume Publishing Firm. The Guillaume Publishing Firm, which is just down here on the right, um, was the central location for the political economy movement in Paris. That's where they had meetings of the Society of Political Economy. That's where the editorial offices of the Journal des Economistes was. That's where they had monthly meetings of the society and they had a dinner in a local restaurant. It's where they had um, discussion groups where they would invite politicians and bureaucrats to come and talk to the political economists about free market uh, ideas. Uh, so this is an extremely important uh, sort of uh, movement. Um, I, just, I like to think of the um, Guillaume publishing firm as like the Liberty Fund of the 19th century, right? using some businessmen's wealth and assets to promote discussion, publication, um, and so on, and uh, it was extremely important, and Bastiat very quickly became a central part of this uh, Guillaume uh, activity, um, and I f thought I should try and find a um, current picture of that same street, so that's from Google Maps, that's the same street, if you go back, you can, traffic is somewhat different, but... Uh... <laughs> I think I might give you some um, examples from the letters, uh, just to give you an, a flavour, and uh, both the man and um, what his concerns were of the period. Um, Bastiat was really honoured that he was welcomed with such open arms 
by the political economists, once they'd recognised his true talents, once they got over the prejudice of him, his accent and his clothes and so on. And I might actually read you that um, this sort of put-down um, by this very sophisticated um, French woman who said that Bastiat was a country bumpkin. Um, let's see if I can find it quickly here. Um, you know, I can't find it straight off, but we'll get to it eventually. Anyway, he goes to his first meeting of the Society of Political Economy uh, where they're having a, a banquet. And they have one in his honour because he, they recognise his, his talents. And he's like the, the bright-eyed young bloke who comes from the provinces and is suddenly fated by all these people he'd read about and had never met. And so this is what he says at this, first, at this welcoming dinner. He says, my dear Felix, that's the, the, his friend back in the provinces, I was given a good welcome by Monsieur Guillaume, who is the first economist I've ever seen in the wild, you know. He told me that he would give a dinner followed by a reception to put me in contact with the men of our school. As a result, I have not gone to see any of these people. This dinner was held yesterday. I was on the right of the host, clear proof that dinner was in my honour. And Monsieur Dunoyer was on his left. Next to Madame Guillaume were Messieurs Passy and Say. Monsieur Dussard and Raybaud were there also. Béranger had been invited, but he had other engagements. Béranger was this wonderful, liberal-minded poet and songwriter who, when politics was sort of underground because of the censorship and ban on a political organisation, people would gather in private drinking clubs and sing songs written by liberal poets like Béranger mocking the government. And I've got some of these songs on my website and uh, it, they're really quite funny. They mock um, government and they have uh, rhymes that, where you can obviously beat your glass on the table and then drink another one and then have another song about some terrible politician. Anyway, Béranger is, was a best-selling author and it, it's interesting because um, at this time many of the, um, the people who were art artistic, the cultural classes, were liberal-minded. We find this shocking today. But then... Liberalism had permeated through many um, strands of the society, including the, the cultural elite, like Béranger. He goes on to say, in the evening, a crowd of other economists arrived, and he lists a whole lot of them. It is between you and me, my friend, I can tell you that I felt a keen satisfaction. There were uh, none of these people who had not read, reread, and perfectly understood my three articles. I could write for a thousand years in the provinces um, without finding a genuine reader except for you. Here one is read, studied, and understood. And so he, find, he finds this extremely ex uh, exciting and emotionally and personally fulfilling that there are suddenly people around him who share his views. I'll give you another example which I think is quite amusing or quite interesting because it shows uh, a layer of thinking in, amongst these classical liberals which in, in many cases is absent today except in the libertarian movement and that is the, the strong connection between free trade and peace and disarmament. And he wants to be elected. Um, he tries repeatedly in the pro provinces to get elected to local government and fails. He tries again in 1846 and fails again. And this is the sort of uh, pamphlet or manifesto that he writes to the, the voters of his district. Now, in it, before the revolution of 1848, um, there was a very restricted franchise. Only a few hundred thousand wealthy landowners in France could vote. Um, so you could actually appeal to them individually. You could write a pamphlet and go and visit every one of them in your district and say, here you are, please vote for me. And this is what he was saying to his uh, constituents. He said, I'm, and this is about Algeria and the French colonisation of Algeria. 
He said, I must make myself clear on one vast subject, more especially as my views probably differ from those of many of you. I am referring to Algeria. I have no hesitation in saying that unless it be in order to secure independent frontiers, you will never find me, in this case or in any other, on the conqueror's side. To me it is a proven fact, and I venture to say a scientifically proven fact, that the colonial system is the most dangerous illusion ever to have led nations astray. I make no exceptions for the English, in spite of the specious nature of the well-known argument, post hoc ergo propter hoc. Uh, after this, therefore, because of this. Just because Britain had colonies and now it was prosperous doesn't mean that its prosperity came from having colonies. Do you know how much Algeria is costing you? And then he has a long discussion about the costs. And then he says, I have spoken of money. I should first have spoken about men. Every year, 10,000 of our young fellow citizens, the pick of our population, go to their deaths on those consuming shores and to no useful purpose so far other than to extend, at our expense, the field of the administrative services, who are naturally all in favour of it. Right? So the bureaucracies benefit from having colonial um, possessions. Uh, so that's, I think, a very interesting uh, letter, and there are many like that in, his, in this collection, where he talks mainly to Cobden about this, because he knows Cobden shares his views. Another side of Bastiat, which I think I've never came across before I read these, um, these letters, was his attitude towards women. And I'm now going to suggest to you that Bastiat is a kind of proto-feminist, which is a, a quite uh, interesting idea. He did marry... He married a Marie Clotilde Iard in 1831, but became estranged from her. And so we have very little comment about her, no discussion or no mention of any offspring. So he was a loner. He was um, a lonely man, in fact, and took up with other bourgeois families who had sort of adopted him. And when they went on holidays or vacation, he would often accompany them. And uh, one of the uh, families had a young girl... Um, and Bastiat takes a kind of avuncular interest in her and preparing her for life and for ma future marriage and so on. And he often advises her on what to read. And so this is a letter where he's writing to her mother um, about Louise. He says, Madame, I am sending Mademoiselle Louise a few verses on women which I liked. They are, however, by a poet who is an economist, since he has been nicknamed the free trade rhymer, Ebenezer Elliot. And this is one of the great... Um, excitements of editing this volume is to come across references to people like the free trade rhymer. I didn't know that there were poets in England who wrote um, poems about the beauties of free trade. And uh, Ebenezer Elliott was one of them and I found his material and I was able to read a little bit about him. And here's Bastiat telling this young woman that she should be reading Ebenezer Elliott's poetry. They were terrible poems, but I, mean, they were, <laughs> I must say. But he goes on, if I had the strength, I would do a free translation of this piece in 30 pages of prose. This would do well in Guillaume's journal. Uh, your sweet little tease, I do not forget that she possesses the art of teasing to a high degree, not only without wounding but almost caressing, does not greatly believe in poetry of production. And she is perfectly right. It is what I, I ought to have called social poetry, which henceforth, I hope, will no longer take for the subject of its songs the destructive qualities of man, the exploits of war, carnage, the violation of divine laws, and the degradation of moral dignity, but the good and evil in real life, the conflicts of thought, all forms of intellectual, productive, political, and religious combinations and affinities, and all the feelings that raise, improve, and glorify the human race. In this new epic, 
Women will occupy a place worthy of them and not be the one given to them in the ancient Iliad genre. Was their role really to be included in the booty? In the initial phases of humanity, when force was the dominant social principle, the action of woman was wiped out. She had been successively beast of burden, slave, servant, and mere instruments of pleasure. When the principle of force gave way to that of public opinion and customs, she recovered her right to equality, influence, and power. And this is what the last line of the small item of, of verse I am sending Madame Louise expresses very well. You see how dangerous and indiscreet the letters of poor recluses are. Right, so he's sort of apologising to her for his radical feminist uh, views on this matter. So that's very another interesting side to Bastiat, which I didn't know about before editing this volume, that he um, has a very interesting view about women and well, how, how they might contribute to um, cultural life, but also economic thinking. Um, two women that he was particularly interested in were popularisers of free market ideas in, um, in Britain. There was... Um, uh, Marset was one woman and Harriet Martineau was another and they wrote large uh, multi-volume sets of popularisation of free market and free trade ideas which sold very well in the 1820s and 30s and Bastiat was aware of them and quotes them quite often. So he was aware that women could make um, an important contribution to free market ideas. Uh, here's this quote I was looking for earlier and I couldn't find, I apologise for that. This is... Um, a rather snarky uh, comment about uh, Bastiat and his country bumpkin ways, um, just when he went to Paris uh, for the first time. Um, Madame Chevreux is a wealthy bourgeois woman um, who mixes in uh, sophisticated uh, circles um, and Bastiat sort of adopts Bastiat as a kind of homeless uh, friend uh, without family and so on. And here she mentions his uh, unfashionable attire. And she says, there I saw Bastiat fresh from the great lands, that's the province, presents himself at Monsieur Say's home. So this is the grandson of Jean-Baptiste Say. His attire was so conspicuously different from those surrounding him that the eye, however distracted, could not help but stare at him for a moment. The cut of his garments, due to the scissors of a tailor from Mougron, was far away from ordinary designs. Bright colours, poorly assorted, were placed next to one another without any attempt at harmony. Floss silk gloves covering his hands, play, playing with long white cuffs, a sharp collar covering half his face, a little hat, long hair, all that would have looked ludicrous had not the mischievous appearance of the newcomer, his luminous glance and the charm of his conversation made one qu quickly forget the rest. So eventually they forgave him for his clothes and probably suggested a new tailor for him in, in Paris. Um, there are quite a few other remarks about clothing in um, Bast Bastiat's letters. For example, once, one day he's late coming to a dinner to the uh, uh, Society of Political Economists and he arrives at the restaurant and he's not sure which room the economists are meeting in and having their, their meal. So he walks up and down and, and sees one room um, with all these coats hanging up outside. Um, there are lots of black coats, which of course is what the conservative economists would wear, and a few white and pink coats. And he makes this funny remark about how he realises because there are pink coats that uh, the wives have probably also come along with their husbands uh, to this, uh, this banquet. Um, so there are lots of little comments like that uh, about attire and dress and social class and, and so on, which I find quite uh, interesting. I want to talk uh, finally about um, Bastia as a politician and um, 
not just a politician, but also uh, I won't quite go far as far to say that he was a street fighting man, but he was actually on the streets of Paris during the revolution and saw violence and took, took part in trying to reduce the amount of violence going on in the streets of Paris. And this is, I think, a very interesting um, part of his life. Uh, so that's, we'll go from, this is a picture of the Chamber of Deputies in 1841, um, which is where Bastiat would have um, taken up uh, as a, on the benches. He was on the, on the left Democrat side um, of, the, of the Chamber. So he wasn't with the Conservatives, he wasn't with the Socialists, but he was sort of on the left. And that's an interesting thing about, uh, he writes about how difficult it was sometimes to know to be understood by others because his voting pattern was so irregular. He would vote sometimes with the left and sometimes with the right. And they would criticise him for that. And he would say, but I am being consistent with my views. You're the ones with the problem. And um, I'll, I'll give you some examples of that, which I think are quite interesting. Um, now, remember that he is elected to the Chamber of Deputies just after the Revolution, and he represents this wine-growing district in southwest France. Now, as all politicians are expected to do, he was expected to bring home the bacon, or in this case, the wine subsidies. And he doesn't do this. He says it's against my principles, believing in free trade and, and deregulation, free markets and so on. And he's, but he's re-elected a second time um, in, uh, 18, at the end of 1848. And this is also very interesting. So he could be consistent in his... Um, beliefs and in his uh, activities in the chamber and get re-elected. I think this is quite inspiring, um, how, how this is possible. Um, I'll give you an example um, of his complaints to some of his electors. Um, so they were complaining to him that he was voting too much with the left. And he was justifying himself in this letter he wrote to his uh, electorate. Um, this is in 1849, a letter to a group of supporters in his constituents. He said, you say that I'm being painted as a socialist. What can I answer? My writings are there. Have I not encountered the Louis Blanc doctrine with property and law? These are all socialists, by the way. With considérance doctrine, with property and plunder. The Leroux doctrine, with justice and fraternity. The Proudhon doctrine, with capital and rent. The Mimorel Committee, they were a conservative group of industrialists who wanted government support industry. Uh, haven't I um, uh, denounced the Mimoral Committee with protectionism and communism and paper money with damned money and the Montagnard Manifesto, this is a socialist group, with the state? He said, I spend my life combating socialism. I would be, it, it would be very painful for me to have this acknowledged everywhere except in the Department of the Land. That's his own electorate. My votes have been depicted as close to the extreme left, why have the occasions on which I have voted with the right not equally been mentioned? But you will say, how uh, have you been able to alternatively be in two such opposing camps? I will explain this. For a century, the parties that have taken uh, a great many names and adopted a great many pretexts, basically it always, it always has been down to a matter of the same thing, the struggle of the poor against the rich. Now the poor demand more than what is just, and the rich refuse even that which is just. If this continues, social war, of which our fathers witnessed the first act in 1793, and of which we witnessed the second act in June of 1848, this frightful fratricidal war is not nearing its end. The only possible conciliation is on the field of justice, in everything and for all. What I am being reproached for is precisely what I am proud of. Yes, I have voted with the right against the left when it was a matter of resisting the excesses of mistaken popular ideas. 
Yes, I have voted with the left against the right when the legitimate complaints of the poor, suffering classes were being ignored. Because of this, I may have alienated both parties and will remain crushed in the centre. And this was, of course, Bastiat's great dilemma in politics in 1848, 49 and 50, being crushed in the centre between left and right. And uh, the, uh, the letters show how he agonised over this and what he could do. I want to talk now a little bit about his role as a revolutionary. Right? This is, again, strange. Many American conservatives have a high regard for Bastiat, but perhaps they don't understand that he was on the streets of Paris at the height of the revolution, watching the revolts uh, and, the, and the shootings that went on. And this is, I think, very interesting. Here's a picture of some of the barricades set up in the streets of Paris. This is from June 1848, but um, uh, there was also another uh, series of riots and up uprisings in February and March of uh, 1848. So there are sort of two moments uh, of, of violence in the revolution. And at both times, Bastia and some colleagues like uh, Gustave de Molinari created their own little magazines. The first one was called La République Française, the French Republic, and the second one was called Jacques Bonhomme, which means um, uh, Jacques Bonhomme is the name given to the average Frenchman. Um, so a bit like John Bull represents the average um, Englishman, Jacques Bonhomme represents the average Frenchman, and to some student groups when I talk about this, I say, well, the American equivalent would be Joe Sixpack. Um, so he, he starts these two magazines, one in February at the height of the revolution in February and one in June as well. And he and Molinari write these little magazines, these little articles, and they stand on street corners in Paris handing them out to workers, to ordinary passers-by, urging them to not be seduced by socialist promises, that the only way the French can um, solve their economic problems is through low taxes, limited government and deregulation. And, of course, you can imagine in the turmoil of Fr the French Revolution, these ideas are possibly not uh, well received. But he also decides to, to d d design some of these uh, short articles as wall posters. And he and Molinari and Coquelin would go around the streets of Paris pasting up these articles in favour of free trade and laissez-faire on the, on the walls of Paris so that passers-by could see them and read them um, in the height of the Revolution. And so the handout I've, I've got for you are some examples of that, and um, we'll get to that in just a moment. Let me just read you a couple of letters where he talks explicitly about what he is doing when he gets caught up in these revolutionary moments in Paris. Um, here's a letter he wrote on the 27th of February. He says, My dear lady, you must be anxious. I would like to reassure you. The revolution has left me safe and sound. As you will see in the newspapers, on the 23rd, everything seemed to be over. Paris had a festive air. Everything was illuminated. A huge gathering moved along the boulevards, singing. Flags were adorned with flowers and ribbons. When they reached the Hôtel des Capucines, the soldiers blocked their path and fired a round of musket fire at point-blank range into the crowd. I leave you to imagine the sight offered by a crowd of 30,000 men and women and children fleeing from the bullets, the shots, and those who fell. An instinctive feeling prevented me from fleeing as well. And when it was all over, I was on the site of the massacre with five or six workmen, facing about 60 dead and dying people. The soldiers appeared stupefied. I begged the officer to have the corpses and wounded moved in order to have the latter cared for and to avoid having the former used as flags by the people when they returned. But he had lost his head. 
The workers and I then began to move the unfortunate victims onto the pavements as doors refused to open. At last, seeing the fruitlessness of our efforts, I withdrew. But the people returned and carried the corpses to the outlying districts, and a hue and cry was heard all through the night. The following morning, as though by magic, 2,000 barricades made the insurrection fearsome. Fortunately, as the troop did not wish to fire on the National Guard, the day was not as bloody as might have been expected. He says, all is now over. The Republic has been proclaimed. You know that this is good news for me. The people will govern themselves. I'm convinced that for a long time they will govern themselves badly, but they will learn from experience. Right now, ideas I do not share have the upper hand. It is fashionable to expand the functions of the state considerably, and I think they should be restricted. For this reason, I am outside the movement, although several of my friends are very powerful in it. Two friends and I have produced a leaflet to inject some of our ideas into the intellectual to and fro. Don't worry about the sequel. My age and health have extinguished in me any taste for street campaigning. But that was a lie. He did, in fact, uh, go on to more street campaigning. So that's very interesting, that he would um, be caught up in the revolt and not run away, but actually take an active part in trying to save the injured people. And in a later um, incident in June of 1848, he does the same thing. He actually th puts himself in between the rioters and the, and the soldiers, urging the soldiers not to fire and putting his own life at risk to try and reduce the bloodshed. So this is a very interesting side of, of Bastiat's uh, character. Um, let me just turn to the handout, um, and you can see for yourself the sort of leaflets that Bastiat, uh, with his younger colleagues, Molinari and uh, Coquelin, were handing out on the streets. Um, these are some of the uh, revolutionary articles from the revolutionary magazine Jacques Bonhomme, and if you turn to page two, um, this is... Imagine seeing this strung up on the streets of Washington. I mean, um, this is quite amazing stuff. Um, this is what... This is an article called Freedom. It appears in the first issue of Jacques Bonhomme in um, about the 11th of June, 1848. I've lived a long time, seen a great deal, observed much, compared and examined many things, and I've reached the following conclusion... Our fathers were right to wish to be free, and we should also wish this. Is it not that freedom has... It is not that freedom has no disadvantages, since everything has these. To use these disadvantages in argument against it is to say a man trapped in the mine, do not get out, as you cannot do this without some effort. Thus it is to be wished that there be just one faith in the world, provided that it is the true one. However, where is the infallible authority which will impose it upon us? While waiting for it to manifest itself, let us maintain the freedom of discussion and conscience. It would be fortunate if the best method of teaching were to be universally adopted. But who has it and on what authority? Let us therefore demand freedom of teaching. We may be distressed to see writers delight in stirring up all forms of evil passion. However, to hobble the press is also to hobble truth as well as lies. Let us therefore take care never to allow the freedom of the press to die. It is distressing that man should be reduced to earning his bread by the sweat of his brow. It would be better for the state to feed everyone, but this is impossible. Let us at least have the freedom to work. By associating with one another, men can gain greater advantage from their strength. However, the forms of association are infinite, which is best. Let us not run the risk uh, that the state imposes the worst of these upon us. Let us seek the right one by trial and error and demand the freedom of association. A people has two ways of procuring something. The first is to make it. The second is to, to make something else and trade it. 
It is certainly better to have the opinion than not, sorry, to have the option than to not to have it. Let us therefore demand the freedom to trade. And I conclude my paper with this rather nice conclusion of his uh, little article. I am throwing myself into public debate. I am trying to get through to the crowd to preach all the freedoms, the total of which make up liberty. Now, this is something that's very interesting about Bastiat's writing. In many cases, he talks about all the different freedoms that we have and that we talk about, freedom to trade, for association of religion, of teaching, and so on. He says, the totality of that is the liberty that I believe in. And they're all interconnected. Property is just as much an important part of our liberty as the freedom of, of association and so on. So this is the sort of thing he's handing out to the workers in the middle of this rioting and killing. Something like 2,000 people were shot by the military in uh, June of 1848. So this is a serious uprising and a serious repression of that. And Bastia opposed what the rioters were uh, writing about, but argued that the, the troops should not be used to kill them. Um, so he was, again, caught between left and right. Let me conclude with this last one, um, the laissez-faire. Again, from Jacques Bonhomme in the middle of this, um, just before this uprising is about to occur, actually. Laissez-faire, it's called. Laissez-faire, I'll begin by saying, in order to avoid any ambiguity, that laissez-faire is used here for honest things, with the state instituted precisely to prevent dishonest things. This having been said, and with regard to things that are innocent in themselves, such as work, trade, teaching, association, and wait for it, banking, he wants banking to be competitive, a choice must be made. It is necessary for the state to let, let things be done or prevent them from being done. If it lets things be done, we will be free and optimally administered most economically, since nothing costs less than laissez-faire. If it prevents things from being done, woe to our freedom in our purse. Woe to our freedom, since to prevent things is to tie our hands. Woe to our purse, since to prevent things requires agents, and to employ agents takes money. In reply to this, socialists say, laissez-faire, what a disaster. What if you please? Why if you please? Because when you leave men to act, they do wrong and act against their interests. It is right for the state to direct them. Bastiat says, this is simply absurd. Do you seriously have such faith in human wisdom that you want universal suffrage and government of all by all, and then you proclaim these very men, whom you consider fit to govern, govern, govern others, unfit to govern themselves. So again, this is one of those little pamphlets that he was handing out on the streets of Paris at the height of the revolution in June. So I've given you, I think, a, a survey of what's in the volume and why Bastiat is a very interesting person to read, both in terms of political philosophy and economics, but also in the sort of social history of the liberal movement in the 1840s in France and the relationships between people like Bastiat in France and, and Richard Cobden in, um, in England. Um, this is the Paris Peace Congress, and I mentioned briefly that I discovered this new speech by Bastiat, which uh, I put up on my website. Um, and here's, I'll just conclude by showing you this contemporary engraving that appeared in a news magazine in 1878 when um, this monument was uh, officially um, inaugurated. There was a big party in Mougrand, I imagine it was a bit like the uh, IHS party last night. A lot of people gathering to remember um, Bastiat and his contributions. Um, they raised money privately to build this. They employed this uh, well-known French sculpture to do two um, sculptures. A bust at the top and this other bronze uh, sculpture which was the personification of fame. 
And what Fame is doing is she is writing the titles of Bastiat's best-known books on the, on the monument. Now, what happened in, 18, in 1940 when the Nazis invaded Europe and France, um, they stripped a lot of these public monuments of the bronze in order to melt them down for munitions. Right? So to think that Bastiat's monument is being used to make artillery and tanks for the Nazis, and given Bastiat's passionate commitment to peace, this is a, a deep, deep irony. After the Second World War, the people of Mugron were able to find the mould that was used to... to um, shape the uh, bust at the top, and so they were able to rebuild that, but they were never able to find the mould for Lady Fame. So that is now missing from the, um, from the statue uh, that you can see now in Mugron. So I urge you to um, look at Bastia in, in more depth. I think there's a lot there that would reward uh, reading. Um, th this is the first volume of six, so there's a lot more to come. And so I'll be quite happy to uh, answer any questions you might have about Bastiat and the 19th century French movement. So do you want to... Thank you. had just broken out in February. Tax collection had collapsed all across France. The government, the new government was um, in the process of creating a whole new constitution. Um, it was a republic again, no longer a monarchy. It just simply didn't have the resources. So that's, that's and that was one reason. The second one was Bastiat knew that um, the estimates for unemployed um, Parisians was something like 10 or 20,000. And Bastiat was of the view that if the government, if it got widely known that the government was going to pay relief to unemployed people, the number of unemployed people would dramatically increase. And when the French government eventually went bankrupt and closed the system down, they were paying for 200,000 unemployed Parisians. So that was the second reason. There's also a moral reason, which he says that, and this goes to the heart of Bastiat's political theory, he says that it's immoral to take from one group their property and give it to another group. So here you'd be taking taxes from um, taxpayers, you know, this would be a forceful act on the part of government and giving it to favoured groups and he was opposed to that on moral grounds as well. Yes. Uh, what were his views on the role of religion in society and actually personally was he anti-clerical, was he indifferent? Was he... Uh, I think he was, he was born a, a Catholic and um, he died taking the last rites. However, he did not believe in any sort of doctrinal, traditional Catholic views. His view was much more a, um, a deist view that there was this creator, so much like the um, uh, founding fathers of the United States, that there was this creator who created man in a particular way and that um, we were um, required to create laws that would suit the human nature that the creator had made. Um, he was strictly opposed to any uh, established religion and against the privileges that the Catholic Church had in France, particularly in the role of education. He saw that as extremely dangerous. Um, he also had a historical view. What, what, there was a second book he didn't ever get around to finishing. Um, he, Economic Harmonies was one, but he also wanted to write a history of plunder. Um, and he had written a number of sketches about 
how this um, book might evolve. And one of the categories or the historical periods of plunder that he wrote about was what he called ecclesiastical plunder. That is when Europe was dominated by the church and the church was requiring through force and other things to, to, to collect the, the tithe. And he was adamantly opposed to that. So uh, I think he was um, a deus probably, but in the Catholic um, tradition. Uh, do you know the work of uh, Philip Blonde and the Respublica people in Great Britain? Uh, because they point out that uh, essentially Marx and the, the, the liberals, the free market liberals, spring from the same root yeah. source. Um, uh, very much on freedom as opposed to community. And the backgrounds of the, the, the main thinkers in, in these movements, both Marx and Rand and him, they're very sort of rootless people. They don't seem to have families. You know, they, they're... Uh, uh, they're not tied into the church, um, so they're sort of, sort of archetype in many ways. Um, what do you think about? Uh, well, I guess you don't know the the rest of the critique, but um, of the of the liberal project. But um, see, he feels that that uh, this leads to bigness, big corporations, just as the left leads to bigness, i.e., and, yes. and lack of community and bigness of, the, of of the government. And that both of these options have their own flaw. That there's a, mm. another way, which is emphasis more less on markets and more on community which does imply some restraint of, of markets um, for, the, for, the public, for the good communities. Well, I would say, I would say to you that um, Bastiat is, in fact, the example of the opposite, that he was not rootless. Um, when you read his letters, he is longing to be back in Mugron with his friends. Um, he writes um, terribly moving letters saying how he hates Paris and he hates the hustle and bustle and he w wishes to be back in the serenity of... of um, the vineyards and the woods uh, where he grew up. And he, he, he reminisces about the great times they had sitting around drinking wine and discussing literature. So I wouldn't describe him as rootless at all. And, um, in fact, the very opposite. Um, the connection with Marx is interesting because when you read Marx and look through his footnotes, he has a lot of reference to, references to the French classical liberal tradition. And I think that's where he does get... Um, many of his ideas about class analysis. And in fact, it goes back to the 18th century and the physiocrats who were, had a very interesting stage theory of history. And the French liberals in the 19th century added to that um, by saying, well, there's yet another stage that we need to be talking about in economic development, and that is the, the stage of industrialism, which they thought they were on the, on the precipice of, of entering. And that's the sort of uh, worldview that Bastiat is part of. He agrees with that, and he wants to see it fulfilled. Um, He's, um, with regard to the argument about um, bigness and you know, big capitalism, they, they were seen as some of his most um, bitter enemies and opponents. It was the large um, industrialists, the manufacturers, uh, those who were in the textile industry who were using the government to prevent competition. Right? They, by having tariffs and subsidies for them, that prevented uh, alternative uh, you know, competitors from, from coming along and uh, offering... Um, uh, consumers' choice and lower prices. So he would say that perhaps the worst enemy of the capitalist system is politically well-connected large corporations. And they were some of his most bitter enemies. Um, yeah, first off, um, thanks for doing this. Uh, two questions. Was Bastiat a member of a political party when he was in the Chamber of Deputies? No. Or was he an independent? Uh, and second... How hard is it to translate Bastiat into English? What are we losing in translation? How do 
a lot of puns. That's a very good question. Um, he didn't belong to any political party. There was none um, that really crossed the divide between left and right as Bastiat would have liked. Um, so he was seen, he, as I said, he was caught between the two major groups, which was the conservatives on one hand and the, and the socialists on the other. And um, he was a lone figure. I mean, in some respects, he's a bit like the Ron Paul of the Chamber of Deputies, um, although he's not a member of, the, of any particular party, but, but he does cross party lines a great deal. And um, that's what I read you, that quotation about him, him defending himself. He's, he said, I'm not a socialist, I'm, you know, I, as, as you accuse me of being. Um, the translation was very interesting. We, we looked at the fee translation um, thinking that one option would be to just translate the, un, the material that had never been translated and to, re, and to use the fee translations and just republish them. Uh, we decided not to do that because we wanted to have a fresh new translation that would be consistent across all his writings. Because even amongst the fee translations, different people at different times translated, and there are stylistic differences, and we wanted to make it all um, more uh, coherent in that sense. Uh, but Which has actually made the project longer, because it means we have to do a lot more work. Um, one of my hard tasks as the academic editor is to try and elucidate for English readers some of the material that gets... It's impossible to translate. Like, as I said, puns. Bastiat is an extremely witty and clever writer. He has this enormous knowledge of French literature and there are all these references to Moliere and La Fontaine and, and other writers. And so we have to explain those in the footnotes, which I think is one thing that Fee did to some degree but not as much as we are doing, trying to explain all these references. Um, Bastiat had this formidable memory. He had memorised all sorts of uh, huge amounts of poetry and, and uh, plays. and He would quote from memory, but he would often get the uh, quote slightly wrong. And so one very time-consuming task was to go back and find the original French that he was quoting from, find out if he's correct or not, and if he's not correct, indicate that in a footnote. And so, you know, Bastiat misremembered this particular passage or he's got the wrong Moliere play, you know. So that was interesting. But he's also um, a very witty writer in that he's constantly using humour and sarcasm to make his points, especially in the economic sophisms. And um, they're hard to translate. Um, a very good example of this in one of the economic sophisms, he does a parody of one of Moliere's parodies. Right? So this is a double parody. Um, and so in, in Moliere's play, The Hypochondriac, he, um, Moliere hates doctors, with good reason, because um, they weren't all that good in the 17th century, but um, he hates them because they do uh, leeches and bleeding and cutting and, you know, and so he has this uh, mock uh, oath of office, or uh, this oath of inauguration that um, an existing doctor uh, asks a new would-be doctor to recite and promise, you know, I will... He's, he does it in pig Latin, um, and the, and the mock um, oath of inauguration is that I promise as a doctor I will bleed, stab, cut, you know, and do all these horrible things. Um, and Bastiat takes that and does his own parody, but this time it's the oath of induction for a customs official, which Bastiat hated as much as Moliere hated doctors. And um, he writes this in pig Latin, and um, we had to have that translated, and then 
what, what he says is, you know, this is the things that a would-be tax collector has to promise to do when he takes the, this oath of office. He says, I promise to um, filch, um, uh, prod, pry, uh, in, uh, invade your privacy, you know, da 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 da, da and he has all these lists of things that Bastiat particularly hated that um, customs officials did. And so that sort of humour and that sort of cleverness, literary reference, is something that's actually very hard to do well um, in the translation. But it's been a delight to translate. He really, sometimes he's unclear, but sometimes he's crystal clear, and it's just a, a, a joy to read. Yes. Uh, six years of his life. How much of that did he have an intimation that his lifespan might be shorter than normal? And then a related question. Yes. Uh, can you kind of project if he had a more normal lifespan, say another twenty years? You hinted at a few things of what we might yes. have expected from him up until say eighteen seventy. Yep, that's they're difficult counterfactual questions, you know, what if um I don't think he realized um how sick he was until 46 or 47. Um, he was very much aware of his mortality and others because he'd lost his own parents through tuberculosis when he was a young child. Um, and there was also always the suspicion that he might also have tuberculosis. But I think uh, he had some of the symptoms of that, but also I think other symptoms which suggest something even more serious, like throat cancer. So to, in the last two years of his life, he was very much aware that he only had a, a short time, amount of time. And there's a very touching letter, which I didn't read to you, where he writes to one of his um, female friends and says, I know you have wished me a late flowering, that I've come to all this later in life and I, I'm on a roll and I'm doing all this productive work. And he said, the great frustration is now that I have a platform for my ideas, I've been elected to the Chamber of Deputies, I have this audience of 900 people who've been elected. I can't talk anymore because I've lost my voice. He said, this is a you know, terrible you know, thing that's happened to me, that once I get my platform, it's taken away from me. I can't use it. Um, so that's one source of his frustration. Um, and it's a race against time. And, but he's got so many demands on his time. He's, he's in Parliament. He's writing newspaper articles. He's writing academic articles. He's writing his book and it, he eventually leaves his work incomplete at the end. Had he lived um, another 10 or 20 years, it's very interesting, the um, Austrians at the Mises Institute have, a, 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 I think, a, perhaps a distorted view, but they really believe that Bastiat had the beginnings of important Austrian economic insights into how, um, especially with subjective value theory and um, with... Um, things like that, and they said if, if perhaps their implication is that if he'd lived another 10 years, he would have developed these ideas and become a fully-fledged Austrian 10 years before the marginal revolution of the 1870s. I'm not so sure about that, um, but uh, it's an intriguing idea. I think also he would have finished this book on the history of plunder. That um, was very much a part of his um, his plan, and he, he he had some intriguing ideas about this and was passionate about it. Um, but who knows? I mean, he might have found love and not bothered with any of this. <laughs> who knows? Uh, perhaps one more question? Yeah. Uh, these are did he write anything about um, the American Revolution? No, he didn't, actually. He, um, he was... 
I think the liberal movement in, in, in Europe is divided between those who find America as the model and those who find England as the model. And I think Bastiat was more along the lines that Britain provides us with better models of how we might um, uh, conduct our activities. Uh, he was very much influenced by Cobden, as I said, and very interested in, in seeing how the British Parliament could uh, reduce tariffs um, in 1846. On the other hand, he's a Republican, so you think he would have been attracted to American republicanism. Um, he only has a few scattered references to America, so it's not a focus of his, um, of his writings, which is curious. All right, so, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you. Thank you. Dr. Hart. Thank you.